Happy Halloween, the retro players. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. I'm your host, Draco655, joined by my co-host, Shootsy. How are you today, Spooky? Doing good, doing good. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody, and uh, happy Halloween to everyone as well. This week on the show, we'll be discussing spooky Halloween teams games, sharing our thoughts on the hardest achievement we have done and the thing we did for them. And lastly, continuing with your thoughts on emulations versus original hardware document. So let's start off with the show with the first segment. Shoot, you're on deck, Nick. All right. So for the first segment, uh, as Draco mentioned, I wanted to talk to everyone a little bit just about being that it is Halloween today, a little bit about um, Halloween themed games, spooky games in general and the whole genre. And uh, I've got a number of titles that, that come to mind when playing playing retro games that are kind of uh, Halloween themed, have a lot of uh, scary or spooky elements going on. Uh, one of those titles that I wanted to bring up firstly is The Addams Family for Game Boy, which is uh, a platformer that's a lot of fun, has um, some different achievements in there that can be a little bit tricky to get as well, like an entire deathless run. So you basic, the basis of the game is that you play as uh, Pugsley of the Adams family and you need to explore the Adams family uh, house and uh, essentially uh, rescue everybody. There's a few boss fights, like three, four, five boss fights. It's been, been a little while since I <clears throat> played that title, but overall a really, really fun game that's got kind of a spooky thematic element to it. And um, what about you, Draco? What, what, uh, Horror games have you enjoyed in the past? Well, speaking of um, gen this genre, so first of all, this genre for me, well, it's not something I like the most, to be honest, because this genres I always trying to avoid it, avoid it for many reasons. First, I don't really like watching movies, horrors, or anything. I hate everything with blood in it. Even like I think I play like trauma centers with the um, it's like a doctor I I don't I don't like it, and every time I try to play like some horror games I always got scared when I was a childhood. Like a very good example, I play some um, on a GameCube. I play Resident. I think it was Resident Evils. I don't know it's four or something. Uh, and then I I started the game and I said like oh that's that looked good that looked beautiful and I walked through without knowing what is going on and then I see a little like little like storage place I just opened the door and I ran to the left side and I saw a freaking zombie just right there like just like what the heck happening I was like. I almost threw the controller on the floor just because I was so damn scared. And then I tried to play a little bit more, but this is like a typical game where every time like something is very scary is happening, Treco cannot handle it. So I know like the, the, these generals have like a lot of feelings about like you. It's like like compared to like racing game or other generals, you like you can have like some fears. You can have some uh, sadness. You can have like 
excitement. So what it's like I have a question for you, Mr. Shoots. Like what why do you love so much horror game? Because I know you like like you like horror movies and stuff. So why why what what's the thrill behind all that stuff? Well, as a as a kid, uh you know, I watched a lot of horror movies growing up. And so it's kind of almost been embedded in me as a person to enjoy anything that has um, horror elements or of the genre. I will say um, to kind of go back on your point a little bit, I'm not a big fan of like jump scare type of horror. And a lot of modern games have like that kind of baked in as a survival horror element. I'm more just a big fan of games in general that have elements that are horror based or spooky theme but like a lot of modern games that's something that seems to be innately baked in is just like a jump scare or like these moments where you have to like mash a button in a, like a um a cutscene or something to like break a zombie off you um you did mention resident evil 4 which obviously that's a little bit more of a modern game or more, a little bit more modern, I should say, than um, retro achievements itself. So it's not supported because we don't have any uh, any console support for like PlayStation Two or GameCube just yet. But that is definitely one of my favorite horror games that I played in the past. I, I would just say to kind of answer your question in short, though, you know, because of all of the movies that I watch and being a big fan of the horror film genre, it's it's kind of something that I've always enjoyed. And um, kind of brings to mind, you know, what what um, what makes a game horror themed? Because there are a lot of <clears throat> there are a lot of loose fits within the genre. You know, there's games that have a couple elements of horror, but they're not a true full on horror game. Um, which brings me to my next my next game, which is Hexen. Um, so to describe it a little bit, it's, it's very similar to Doom, like runs on a Doom style engine. Um, but you can choose to play, I can't remember the three, I think there's three different classes. You can play like a wizard or like a, a warrior or, and then there's like one other one. Um, but it's, it's like medieval kind of enemies and like horror. Uh, I'm actually looking at my achievements right now. I have those pulled up. So the, the three different classes you can play are the fighter, the cleric, or the mage. And your goal is to, like with any Doom style game, get to the end, kill the final boss. There's just a lot of like the way that the the game is set up in terms of um, the environments and the maps is really cool. Like it's got like a very dark and scary theme to it, um, like dark cathedrals and churches that you're going through and exploring And there are areas where, um, you know, you can, there's enemies like right around the corner. So it's not necessarily a true, true, full on, full blown horror game, but it still has those elements in there. And um, that's kind of, I guess, what I would think about when I think about kind of a loose fit. What about you? What do you think? Well, I have two titles in mind, which I think for me, they're quite horror games. Don't judge me anyone on that one, but my first titles is the Zelda Majora Mask. Why this game? Well, don't laugh at me first of all, but it's not the horror game movie, obviously. But every time I saw that 
the the moons you know like the big moon with the giant smile or something like and just like trying to run in like just trying to make chaos in in into the stuff that for me when i was still a kid oh my god i i i mean that's why i don't play horror games because just that little thing scared the the shit out of me uh, as a kid and i never played a game after i see it and even today I don't think I, I really want to play that set because I don't want to just seeing that moons again chasing me on me. And the other game also scare quite a bit me, which I think I mentioned into this podcast already, but the Yoshi Stories. I don't know why Yoshi Stories on N64 like got me, but I don't know, dude. This game is, I don't know, it's so scary and... It's other stuff like that. I, 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 don't, I don't like that, man. What do you think, shit, about my two games, Ray? No, I think I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think those would fall into, like, a very loose fit. Uh, emphasis on the very. But I, I would say, um, you know, you brought up Majora's Mask, which I played quite a bit as a kid, and I also played Ocarina of Time. I would say, uh, just kind of thinking about this out loud, that, you know, Ocarina of Time versus Majora's Mask, I feel like Ocarina of Time has a lot more um, light to dark and dark to light contrasting elements, you know, in terms of the narrative, like good versus evil. And Majora's Mask just overall always kind of made just had a more dark theme to it. You know, things were a little more gritty um, and a little more scary. And uh, a lot of people, you know, there's like some meme where it's like, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the enemy, but it's the enemy in Ocarina of Time that um comes up uh like um, it's like a mummy and if you get too close it'll like grip you and like drain a bunch of life and it like it it's uh pretty scary and then there's like one other enemy in ocarina of time that's uh a boss in the the bottom of the well or like a mini boss i guess and it's like this like white and red creature that has like these hands that can grab you and you have to kill it. and it has like this head with these giant teeth so pretty scary um but you know majora's you brought up uh majora's mask as well and uh the moon itself is pretty scary but those giants that prop up the moon to save save the world the four different giants from the four different areas is also kind of scary as well again we're, we're talking about you know a loose fit here not a full-blown um a horror genre game because obviously the zelda would probably be like a i guess an action rpg of sorts or an action adventure style game rather so uh but what about you what do you think about that so yeah you mentioned like this enemy like i really remember this enemy and i don't really like this enemy also but speaking back to the to the genres i don't like a like a, for me you're the specialist of the horrors games and stuff no doubt about it. So I have a good question for you there. So we we know like our games have like kind of like zombies. They have like guns, weapons. They have like all gore items, bloods everywhere, vampires and all those stuff. What do you think like, what do you think is like a very good um, horror games? Like what is the definitions of a good horror, uh, horror games with like, is it like more platforming? Is it like more like Resident Evil? What what is like a very good mix of make a very good horror horror game? 
That's a good question. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that make a game considered like a horror game is it has to have thematic elements of horror. You know, blood, guts, um, scary stuff, things like that. And then, um, you know, when we're talking about loose fits, they usually aren't centrally focused on one of those thematic elements or um, anything like that. So, you know, with my first game that I mentioned, The Addams Family for Game Boy, right? The Addams Family is generally thought of as like scary. There's a lot of thematic elements of horror that are mixed into the game. I feel like one of the main things that is a main component of making the game a, a horror themed game is, you know, just having, having one, two, three elements of the macabre or having one, two, three elements of, of horror mixed in there. And I don't necessarily to, to your other point. Um, <clears throat> I don't think the genre necessarily matters as much as, um, as the, the thematic elements that are in the game but some genres tend to blend better with those elements, right? So like Resident Evil, it, it, because of the, you know, the survival or nature of the game and, and things like that, and zombies everywhere, all of, the, all of the enemies that you kill being horror-themed and um, the plot, you know, revolving around the virus and <clears throat> the, thing, the other things like that. I think all of those... Uh, items together are what makes it like a true survival horror game. Whereas with loose fits, it's more just, you know, there might be some elements of horror, but the centralized, the centralized plot of the game and the characters in the game aren't, aren't um, necessarily based around horror or that genre. Speaking of someone who very put a lot of time this month about a very nice event of himself, King Sizzle, he did like the entire month a lot of spooky games and horror games. I don't know how he did it, but he did quite a few games there. And I saw him play a couple of games, which make me very laugh. But since I'm not very a fan of horror games, well... Uh, yeah, I, I didn't want it to get too much spooky there. So did you watch a little bit in a King Sizzle shoot? Yeah, I've been watching him a little bit. He played like um, Muppet Monster Adventure, which I actually had a, a really good time with. And you could consider that like a, a horror game, kind of somewhere in between um, <clears throat> a loose fit and a horror game. Um, it's a, a 3D platformer, so you're collecting its uh, stars and things like that to advance. There's some boss fights as well, and it's overall it's a very fun and chill set. It's mostly focused on just collecting things, and then I think there's like damage lists for each boss, but the boss fights aren't too bad. Um, and I I enjoyed that game. I actually remember the reason I I played that game is because I saw you playing that that game i think a while ago kind of back when we first met or maybe a month or two after we first met but yeah no i've, I've been watching him play that and um another horror theme game that i've talked about a couple times on the podcast but i can't stress it enough that it's an awesome game so why not bring it up again is dead uh, which is a homebrew for game boy and it is just um 
really, really well done, really tastefully done. Obviously, I have a bit of bias because I'm a big Game Boy fan, but it is like a, a game where you make different choices over the course of three days that determine the outcome of the game. There's a bunch of different endings. You talk to different people, collect different items, and then um, use them in different areas to change the outcome of the game. But the the plot is that you know, you have a dream where I think like the world is going to end in three days. So it's pretty dark, but really, really well done. You know, if that had been a, a Game Boy game back in the day when Game Boy games were made and not a homebrew, I think it would have had a great, great deal of success. Uh, and then another, also another game that came to mind that I've talked a little bit about on the podcast before is Gargoyles Quest, which would probably be well fit into the category of kind of that middle ground between um, being a full-blown horror game and just being more of a loose fit. Um, and it, it's a lot of fun. You know, you play as a gargoyle trying to, I don't, I don't know the exact, exact plot of the game, but it's a, it's a platformer, you know, get through all the stages, but it's got some RPG elements to it as well. Like going back and forth, giving so-and-so the correct item to advance the story, but you play as a gargoyle and you have like different uh, powers that you can use or you acquire over the course of the game, like little projectiles. But it's just kind of interesting that particular game because there's, you know, there's RPG elements mixed in, like slight RPG elements. It's mostly focused on platforming. And one of the cool things about the game towards the end is when you first start the game, um, you're only able to fly for a short period of time. But at the end of the game, you get the ability to infinitely fly and you're a lot more powerful. So it's kind of one of the interesting things about that game is you start off very, very weak and the game seems somewhat difficult. But as you get a little bit further and you get more powerful, it, it becomes a lot easier to be able to survive. And another interesting thing about the game is that there is items that you collect that you can trade for extra lives, which... I can't think of that many Game Boy games where that's the case early on. Certainly there are, you know, numerous games where you can collect a bunch of lives or do things to cheese getting lives, but trading items for lives is kind of an interesting interesting mechanic that I can't remember a lot of Game Boy games having, but it looked like you um you had a thought regarding that. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, like like you mentioned the um, the Muppet Adventure. I mean, that was quite a fun games for to play as like an horror game. I mean, for me, not really like an horror game because more like like ish like platforming games. But in general, like I kind of like this quite this genres in some ways because these genres can, like I mentioned, like can give you like a lot of emotions. A lot of stress or a lot of very nice um, ways to see a video games like very gore or very hardcore or any like it's not like your typical like friendly games where you play it's always like a good or like a new ways or always a new ways to seeing an approach to another game so it, I think it would be time to introduce the, the other segment I'm gonna have for you today is so we're gonna we're gonna talk about the things I do for an achievements. Well, this is quite an interesting segment because we already mentioned about how we put the time investment into 
how we play achievement. But now, what we do for when we play for achievement? So, do you have like you, you, you do you want to start off uh, this segment too? Yeah, of course. Um, in regards to that, you know, just talking about some of the more extreme and interesting things we've had to do to get achievements, and I actually have. Uh, the perfect thing to start us off, I think, um, which was leaving my computer on over the course of the last day or two. Uh, a little bit of an unusual strategy, but it correlates to the specific achievement I was working on. I mentioned that I was uh, going through Pokemon Red and Blue revision, and uh, the achievement that I was working on is called Have Fun, which is to catch Chansey, Scyther, or Pinsir, Tauros, and Kangaskhan in the Safari Zone in one session where multiple Safari hunts are fine. So, uh, the Safari Zone, uh, catching those four particular Pokemon, they are quite tough to catch. Uh, they don't show up as often, and there is a significantly low chance that they will escape when you try and catch them. So, one of the... Uh, interesting things about that achievement is it can take quite a bit of time uh and i don't have just hours and hours and hours in the day to be able to go through and do that achievement all at once and it has to be done in one session meaning session starts when you open the emulator and ends when you close the emulator so what i did is i i caught i was actually lucky enough to be able to catch three out of the four Pokemon in one session, leave the emulator running and then just leave my PC on overnight. Uh, my PC isn't like super noisy, so it didn't disrupt my sleep or anything, but that's just one of the more, I guess, um, extreme or different examples I can give. Maybe not necessarily super, super difficult because it's a lot of RNG and just kind of waiting things out. But one of the more extreme things I can think of that you, you would do where it would take you outside of the game and actually leaving the hardware on in order to do that. Uh, what about you? Well, that's a very interesting uh, strategy there, shoot, to just like <laughs> what you mentioned, like just like leave your PC. I never thought about doing that. But maybe like if I'm doing for like a very long achievement and I need to not close my games, I think that probably like a strategy I would go for. That's very, I think I did that once when I was trying to play a video games or like a games on the PC. And I actually like let my PC the entire night to make sure I was selling my stuff. But that was another story for another time. One thing I, I think I tried to do like a lot for what I do for an achievement is... Well, I don't want to be like too much frustrated in some ways. So what I do usually, if if I need some information, I always look for the information needs. So tricks are doing some, or like the guys, pretty much like the guys. Like every time I need something to figure it out, and I don't want to put like the the times to. Sometimes I figure it out, sometimes I don't. So that's one thing I like to do for my achievements is I try to gather like most information as possible. And I like also to watch the entire set first because every time you're trying to do a games, you always think like the ways you're going to clear the games if you're going for the masteries. So do you go for this achievements or rather this achievements? Are you going example like if you need to play the game in hard mode already? So maybe knock out the hard mode first. So you're going to do like two, three achievements at the same times. So it's always has like 
what is the best strategies to go for an achievements? So that's what I tend to do. So are are you are you the same way as Mishu? Yeah, I, I definitely do the same thing. I mean, I take a look at, at games and overall just review the set to make sure that I'm well aware of everything that I need to do, particularly if there's missables. Um, with Pokemon, I again, I bring that up because it's a good example of kind of just one set where you want to make sure that you do review all of the achievements because there are, are a lot of missables and they are all marked um, sets having missable or achievements that you can miss if you uh, and then not be able to go back to on the first playthrough of a game are not all consistently marked across the board. Um, that is kind of a, a debatable subject. A lot of people feel um, that they shouldn't be marked and that the player should just research the game more. Uh, some people feel like for RPGs, which are quite long games, that it's just more of a courtesy than anything for the achievement developer to do that. But it, it could the argument can be seen both ways. And I to go back to your original point, yeah, I mean, I definitely review a set to make sure that I feel like I'm capable of doing all of the achievements within the set. Um, on the same token, though, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week with just achievements always kind of surprising us in terms of our ability once we've gotten into the game and kind of been able to polish up our skills and, and get through the game and um, get a lot better at it and kind of surprise ourselves sometimes with what we're capable of. But to, as far as researching the achievements and kind of reviewing all the achievements as a whole before diving into the set, that's 100% something that I, I do every time, each time that I do look into playing an achievement set. But what about you? It looks like you had a thought on that. Yes, I just think about a very good thought. So like another way to see like what you do, the thing you do for an achievement, one, I have one subject in mind, the creativity of an achievement. So what I mean by that is sometimes when you play like set or other stuff, you have like always like a unique ways to approach the games and doing some stuff you're not supposed to do. And it's always like interesting to, to, to do. Like I remember to have played like an MGN set where I have to do like a racing games and I don't remember the games. I think it was like the um, Box Bunny or something on the PlayStations. And I was pretty good finds doing the entire games. And then I realized after like when I was close to mastering the set, which I did not, I needed to do the entire cup, which be probably like four or five race difference. And then I, I needed to not touch a single item block there. So for me, it's like... Well, that would be maybe easy to do, or I don't know. And then I realized after a couple of try, well, this is pretty much like unique ways to play the game. And it's definitely hard to play the games because the, the gaps of the two block or the two item block was very, very close to each other's. And at the same time, you have pretty much the RNG side as well, which like the, the CPU can bump into you. So I needed like for, for this topic, we needed to do like, like how much the creativity of many achievements make you think of what you have actually have to do for an achievement, which is crazy. And I think should have a pretty a good example of it. Yeah, no, uh, as far as the, uh the creative side of achievements it's really interesting because i think some of the 
I'm going to try and put this in a way that doesn't sound convoluted. So forgive me if I, I sound a bit uh, convoluted, but I would say the more creative achievements oftentimes end up being the more difficult achievements, which oftentimes results in you having a lot more fun. Uh, hopefully that didn't sound too long winded, but I think it's, it's definitely the case, you know, there's your standard bread and butter, um, complete, complete this level, complete that level, kill this boss, do this damage list. But I've always found that the more creative achievements are really interesting in kind of making you have to calculate and think about things, uh, a little bit, a little bit more, um, flexibly just be a little bit more flexible about how you're trying to break down an achievement set you know when it's um when it's just complete this stage or beat this boss damage list there's certainly nothing wrong with those and those are a lot of the time expected criteria even off of retro achievements you know you look at um xbox or playstation achievements and you'll you'll see a ton of those throughout a number of titles but I think that uh, when the achievements are more creative, not only does it kind of give the player some agency as far as kind of coming up with a strategy, but it also reflects uh, pretty well on the dev in terms of not only their game knowledge, but just the way that they're presenting this this package or this achievement set to us in a way that makes us really enjoy it and in a way that perhaps no one ever had in the past. You know, there's people that they... Um, they create their own challenges, right? That's a little bit, a little bit of an element of how speedrunning came about. Is people wanted to see how fast can I possibly beat this game, and then you know, um, unconventional methods started to kind of break their way into the fold, you know, uh, with doing glitches and different things like that, and taking advantage of manipulating the games in such a way that that people weren't often doing. And so there is a really rich history behind it, and I think that's how kind of one way that achievements you know got started in the first place is how can we challenge players in unconventional ways to give them uh, not only replay value on the game but enhance the gameplay for them and really push them to the limit that's a very good top there shoot and which i i, I would like to thanks for for that like all the person would take the times and effort to create something like almost like a mystery egg achievements or like a lot of the achievement where we it's always creative to play uh, the way we're not supposed to play the game so it's always fun to see that and i got something very interesting in mind is what is for you shoot like the um the weird i think the weird achievement you got or you like a thing you had you needed to do into the weird way to get the achievement and like the the hardest way so like for me i think the the weird way i think i needed like i think it's like sm64 and it's like i just needed like almost like to sleep like mario when it's just like tired and then just sleep and you get an achievement so it's like something like those are like okay i'm just doing something and then it it do like okay it's it's just fun but sometimes you have like a very like hard setups or a hard stuff to do to just make this achievement like very hard and like oh wow i cannot believe i have done so much thing harder for an achievement like example uh for me um i think i don't know i don't know if i mentioned that but when i did play when i did play paper mario 64 i played the first time for fun and then i realized after a month 
I needed to restart the game because I messed up. Like I, I think I, I messed up two badges because I did not transfer the badges from the peach to my inventories, and then I needed to restart the entire game twice to get this one single achievement. So sometimes, even if the achievement is quite like easy or not. You do things where it's out of your mind. I think I play like also like fire, uh, fire red olive green like twice or more than twice. Like sometimes, I, yeah, I play like we play like the more and more of the game we're supposed to do just because we did a little mistake. So sometimes, like like I mentioned, we, we do like so many things for just a single achievement, which is crazy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, setup time is a, a big one that you mentioned. Uh, setup time meaning, you know, how long it takes to get to the specific a point uh, point where you can get the achievement in question. So um, it can always be really frustrating with some achievements, and it makes them more difficult. Um, not necessarily in, in, in a creative way, but it just makes them more difficult to get. So an example would be, um, you know, an achievement where it takes 25 or 30 minutes to get to the end of the game. And the game is set up in such a way where you can't continue and you only have one shot at the boss. And so overall, it makes it makes it pretty difficult. Um, I can think of something that's pretty similar to this. Um, so I played NARC a long time ago. NARC, no one had the guts until now for the NES. And the hardest achievement in that game, from what I remember, was defeating Mr. Big without losing a life. Um, I can't I can't remember uh, if there was continues or things like that set up. I remember it was I remember in my mind that it was very difficult, uh, and it was like twenty five minutes to get to Mr. Big. And then you had like a very small window of lives to be able to beat him. And the fight was quite difficult. So, you know, 25 minutes per attempt, you know, we're people that have jobs. We work, we have other things going on in our lives. And so it's like 25 minutes per attempt. That gives me maybe seven or eight attempts. And so it definitely puts puts the, the fire under our feet in terms of the pressure that we feel when we're going for things like that. You know, um, a lot of the times it just depends on how the game's set up with lives and continues and damage and health. Those three or four values are really what what make the difference in, you know, a deathless run or a damageless run. And there's some damage lists that are pretty insane and there's some that aren't. I know that I've watched people where they have like a 10 or 15 minute setup just to have to get into one achievement to go to get one shot at it and then go again. And I think those are always um, frustrating, and that's that's where you know save states, for practice purposes, of course, uh, would be something that would would be pretty useful and and help the player. I haven't had to do that too much, really. I've just kind of toughed it out and and just kind of smashed my head against the wall a lot of times with practice, practice, practice to get to that point. But I definitely think that that's a a big factor. And I also, you know, you brought up a great point that without the developers, we wouldn't even have any of these great achievements to tackle. So quick, quick shout out to all the developers that are producing achievement sets for us to work on. There's so many achievement sets coming out each and every day, and it really is a pleasure to be able to to enjoy the set. So thank you again to the developers that are working so hard, you know, spending their their time doing this for free 
to make something that's fun for us to be able to enjoy on the website. Very well said there, Shoot. And we we forgot to mention one thing we can do for Chimin to this topic before we go into the next one. So we forgot to mention what we have to do for Chimin because sometimes we can clear stage, we can collect items, we can um, damage less, we can do something in one sessions, uh, and we can do like many, many other things as an achievement for complete and getting. So we have like a lot of ways to get achievement into this website, which is great. So the last topic we have for today uh, for you guys is emulation versus original hardware. So shoot, can you, can you share our, your first thought with this segment? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, emulation versus original hardware. I think on the very first episode of the podcast, we talked about the feeling or the excitement of um, going over to your friend's house and having that, you know, that Super Smash Bros. battle or that Mortal Kombat um, battle. And the first thing I, I wanted to talk a little bit about is, you know, do you prefer the feel of playing games on the emulators versus the original hardware? And really, what are the pros and cons of both? So to kind of kick things off here, I mean, with emulation, you have access to the achievements. Obviously, at this point in time, there's no way to uh, do the achievements with the original hardware unless you're playing like more more modern games that have achievements built into the the network, like um, you know Xbox or PlayStation or something like that. But um, with original hardware, there's just kind of that nostalgic feel that you don't necessarily get unless you do that. I know for me. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about this here in just a moment, but even when I am emulating N64 games, I use an N64, uh, controller, uh, to play, to play them. I have an adapter, so it converts the N64 controller to USB, and then it plugs right into the back of the PC because the N64 controller has such an unusual layout that I feel like using any other controller would just make things a little bit awkward so it is nice to have that original hardware uh, as well which is kind of a mix of using the original hardware but through an emulator to be able to enjoy the game in an almost traditional way well for me um i think i i did only grow for the most of my life maybe like since like a couple of years i'm playing like more emulation now because of retro achievement and the achievement but before that I was pretty much, uh, uh, I, everything I got was from hard work uh, and buying some every time a new generation of games like old and, and, and N64, Game Boy, GameCube, PlayStation, everything, every console, every games, every, every time I spent was into my original consoles. So for me, I, I always enjoyed those I mean, I prefer those hardware and stuff because I got like I, I work hard for for my for my games. I I work hard for just get. I think I like when I was a kid, like I could not spend like a lot of money to like buying the game by himself. But when I was a kid, the what I was living like into a, like a little towns, and then I was always into my bike, and I was like cycling through the the, the my city, and I was trying to find the most pepsi can yes pepsi a lot of pepsi can and stuff and some like uh finished drink and stuff to just like having like those extra money 
going to the stores and then trying to have the game for a day or two and then bring it home and just feel a, a, a game where I could not afford. And I spent so many time doing that over and over to just like trying new different N64 or Super Nintendo games a lot. So for me, that was like a lot of experience. And in the, the other side, which I like with hardware a lot is you can play more with your friends because you have like your console at home, you can invite them some friends after schools and you can share, play it. And it's like, it's very fun. Like going to a house, play Mario Party, bring your four controller together, play it, have fun. So for me, that kind of feeling, uh, it's, I mean, that I think that's one of the best uh, share moment I have when I was playing with my all my artwork and yeah. So what what do what do you think, Shoot? Yeah, I think that, again, there's something to be said about just being able to go to someone's house and share an experience with them and have a good time. And I don't really think there's a good substitute for that. Um, I think people are doing that probably less nowadays, especially with uh, the, the current pandemic that's going on. But I think there, there really is something to be said about, you know, physically hanging out with people and um, playing games with them and connecting with them through that. I know when I was a kid, you know, you mentioned uh, running, running games, uh, having them for a day or two. I, I'll never forget. Uh, there's a place called like Hollywood video we used to go to and we'd rent, we'd rent games and eventually they got phased out. I mean, movie stores are, are pretty phased out at this point. I think there's like only one blockbuster left. Like there's, it's known as the last blockbuster and it's somewhere in Oregon. If I'm thinking about this correctly, uh, don't quote me for that, but I think it's the, there's one blockbuster left called the last blockbuster that's over in Oregon. But, um, you know, the days of being able to experience games with other players physically where you're both in the same room, I think that they're still definitely there. It just, it feels so different, you know, because of how we're so connected with the internet and how people are um, playing games together. You know, you could just say to sum it up, really, that people today are connecting and playing games very differently from how they were 10 or 15 years ago. It's just that the technology is changing so much and, you know, everything's online now. Uh, and it didn't used to be that way. You know, the Internet had a much different feeling to it 10, 15, 20 years ago. But with everyone having access to it, with hardware becoming cheaper, um, cheaper and cheaper, and just with all of these advancements in technology, you know, it is a good thing. It's just, uh, I think a lot of people long for the days where you could connect more with people on a personal level. And, you know, you weren't just two voices behind a screen. Um, talking to one another and not actually getting to physically be there. It's just like, you know, it's like going to a concert, for example. Um, that might be a good way to think about it. When you listen to your favorite song and you enjoy it over and over again, it's one thing, but physically going and seeing the artists and being there at the show 
and hearing that live performance is just it really takes it to a whole another level right it's an experience and i think we're a lot less these days about experiences and more about convenience and i think that experiences are something that is just a little bit more special because of that you know experiences because because we're more in the digital and less in the physical there's just something a lot more special about the experience that kind of makes it feel just that much more important to us as as human beings that's a very interesting talk here shoot um also um what i want to mention here is um when i was also like a kid um growing up i I really like when, like, you know, like the feeling when you have a new console, like just going like, oh my God, GameCube's going to be live in a couple of seconds. So every time it's like you order, pre-order every time your game is you like, pre-order your console, getting ready. And like, oh, that's the day. Today's the day when a new game is released. So you, you have always your hype kind of like moment there with all the new console and new games where I was always sitting there into my, uh, into the, like the shop a gaming shop, like just before, like the, uh, the open the store. And I was like, I was always the first and I get always my copy and stuff first to get, uh, to get what I wanted. And also what I did a lot is, um, every time I wanted to buy a game example, my switch, when I buy my switch, um, I sell, pretty much sell a lot of my games to get that cheaper because I have like a shop where they, uh, example, I sell my Pokemon games, I sell Mario games, all my GameCube game and stuff, and they just make my Switch cheaper. And when I, I did buy it because I, I didn't need those old stuff. So one thing for me, well, the more I grew up and the more I when I discovered Ari is like the amount of like, if you play like always hardware, which is fantastic for like a collection aspect or everything you want to keep and the money you spend into that will always a little bit grow because retro games are the more rare these days to just find and having a good condition of a game. So it's always like a good like, okay, this game value a lot to you because it costs, it costs way more than it was before. And it's like, if, if I compare this to the emulations today, it's like, for me, if I play emulations, I can play like more games than I was to play as a kid. Like I never like play like Layton or I never play like those games because I cannot afford to buying the games. But now because we have more technology involved, that make this like a way more cheaper ways and almost the same result as if I play the real game, you can only even notice the difference. I mean, you can notice a little bit the difference, but it's not as bad as if you play like on your console. So it's like a very cheaper way to try and experience like a lot of the games where you're not supposed to, you never did before. So I really enjoy more emulation the more it goes on today because I can play my PlayStation, I can play DS, I could play, I, I will experience like GameCube stuff in the future, Streamcast, which I never have as a, as a kid, as a console, compared to my hardware. So the hardware, you always like spend like crazy amount of dollars 
always for a new console, always for games you want. And at the end, for how much satisfaction you're going to get, like maybe like what? Maybe like for me, like when I, when I spend like, for example, like Super Mario Party on the Switch, I play for a couple hours. And then I was like, oh, the game is very mediocre for me. So I was like, why keep playing it? I would prefer to play my other like fun experimentation to my Auris and other stuff like this. So I spend a lot, way too much money than I think I realize now than I should. So what do you, th- what do you think, Sue? Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the collection aspect and while it's great, and uh, I've definitely got, you know, a stack of PlayStation 2 games sitting next to me. Um, you know, I've got, got my Game Boy collection as well. It can be a very expensive habit. And um, I think that uh, neither, neither you nor me are multimillionaires quite yet. We haven't won the lottery. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's tough, especially when you're not, uh, you're not exactly uh, just flush with cash. so to speak. So I think that, uh, like you said, the technology with emulation is getting to the point where you're, uh, you know, able to access more and more things at at a lower cost. And, um, you know, you just have to have the PC to be able to run it. And it's not quite the same experience, but, you know, uh, for those of us that aren't, uh, again, flush with cash or, um, in a position where we're able to just buy everything that we want, it is a really great way to be able to access uh, as much as you need for a very cheap cost. So, you know, you can build a PC for a pretty reasonable price these days that'll be able to emulate just about anything, build an emulation machine. Um, There's Raspberry Pis out there, which are quite cheap. Uh, As far as I know, they have no plans to raise the price. I think it's like 35 bucks or something like that. the last aspect I kind of wanted to touch on that made me think a little bit is we're talking a lot about consoles and hardware, and we have dove into this a little bit in the past, I think, uh, but controllers, you know, controllers uh, are a big part of emulation. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I use the N64 controller when I play N64 games but I'm a big, big controller fanatic. I've got, you know, four or five, let's see, like five, six controllers next to me for different systems. I've got like my, my Logitech one. I've got my um, 8-bit dough as well. And it's, it's, I think at the end of the day for controllers, it always falls down to preference and, you know, how you feel and how it feels in your hands and um, different things like that, the weight and, and the way that the buttons feel when you press them. But I've always really, really been a big controller person since I started getting into, I think I started kind of getting a lot more into controllers when after I built my uh, Raspberry Pi and got emulation station going on that. But having a controller that's reliable and that you feel like is really versatile is something that just makes emulation that much more enjoyable. Um, personally, uh, for controllers, I use the, like I said, the N64 for any N64 games with a, the name of the adapter I use to convert it for anyone that is interested in it. 
Uh, I'm not sure if it's available anymore since I bought this a while ago, but I'm, I'm sure it probably is. It's called the Mayflash adapter. It's got two ports. So it's got N64 in and then USB out. Just goes into the back of the computer. Um, for everything else, I use a controller called the 8-bit DO. 8-bit, that's 8-bit DO SN30 Pro Plus. Um, a lot of people use this controller. It's a little more spendy. I think it's about 50 bucks, but it's essentially a, a PS2 style controller. So it's got R2, R1, L1, L2, and then the PlayStation style layout, but it's great controller. Uh, it's wireless. I prefer wired, um, but it's got like Bluetooth. It's got different modes for it. Um, it has a turbo functionality built into it. And um, it's a really reliable controller. I know that some people prefer to use like Xbox 360 or PS5 controllers. So really it falls down to preference and again, 50 bucks. So it's not, not a cheap controller, um, but it, it's served me really, really well. I really enjoy it. And one of the nice things about it is anytime I use RetroArch with it, the button mappings always seem to work out really well, regardless of the system. RetroArch syncs up really well with it. So it's um, definitely been been uh, a great and reliable controller. And then um, I guess the other controller that I can think of that I've used a little bit from time to time, it's kind of my, my cheaper controller. And um, I still enjoy using it once in a while. It just really depends on the game. But it's, it's a nice little controller. It's the Logitech F310. Um, it's got a PlayStation-style a PlayStation 2 or PlayStation, I guess you would say, style layout of controller setup. Um, the one thing that's not as great about it is that the D-pad, the buttons are not separate. It's just one uh, chunky uh, D-pad. But it, it it's still aesthetically, it's a cool controller. Um, it's got some uh, Windows like you can interface it with like the Windows 10 game bar, which I don't, I don't really do, but just kind of an extra feature. And then um, I, I like the way that the R2 and L2 buttons click. <laughs> I'm all about, I'm all about the button clicks. Like I, I play with uh, when I used to play PC games, play with like a mechanical keyboard. So it, again, it really falls down to preference, but I just wanted to touch on that subject a little bit. Cause I know that um, people have their quirks with controllers and, um, you know, some people like the really the clicky stuff. Some people like like a soft button push. I think the thing we can all universally agree that we don't like is when a button becomes sticky. That's just the worst. Right. So I was going to ask you, Draco, I think I, I think I know what you're using hardware wise. But um, for our audience out there, maybe you could share a little bit about your preferences on controllers and kind of how you feel about that. Well, my controller is also the same as an Indie Doe because I got that now, but I will always said and one thing, the GameCube controller is always the best and it will still be the best because this is the GameCube styles. GameCube has the best controls, the, band, the, the better and ability. You have a great joystick there. Their D-pad is not annoying, and everything on that controller is the best. So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. I mean, this is the, the, the best of the controllers, and I like it a lot. So, for conclude this episode, thank you. Happy Halloween for everyone against 
be that would that would that's that's what to think of for today's episode of our podcast. Be sure to like the videos. Always like the videos and make sure to hit the bells to not miss any of uh, the episodes we do. Let us know in the comments what your favorite retro sequel is. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And happy Halloween again. Thank you, Shoot, for today. That was very fun. And see you guys soon. Bye.